Welcome to episode three of After the Ninth, your insider Chuck Wagon podcast. I'm Cass Patterson with my co-host Dayton Sutherland. How are you doing today, Dayton? Great, Cass. How are you? I'm doing really good. Uh, I mean, you just came off of a pretty exciting weekend. Uh, how are you feeling after that? Uh, yeah, it was good. It was uh, nice to uh, get back, you know, with WPCA and. Uh, um, I was also driving with the WCA as well, as I have been all year. So I got to hook two outfits, uh, you know, for four nights. So um, got eight races in, and that's a lot more racing than I've done, uh, you know, all year. So it was great to uh, get a way better feel for the lines and, and uh, you know, the horses and stuff like that, uh, which I really haven't, uh, you know, been able to all all season just because the the races uh, and the race nights and the shows are so much shorter um, on the WCA just because it's you know a smaller tour and whatnot so that was the that was the most fun for me is uh, really getting some time in on the seat and uh, it ended pretty well on the WCA side uh, we ended up winning it um, I, I should have won it I felt because uh, um, I used a couple of uh, dad's horses that I had last year uh, you know on the wheel uh, for the dash and uh, when you hook, when I hook those two horses, um, there's just, there's just no beating them. I mean, Dad was real successful with them this year, and uh, and uh, I was really successful with them in uh, Rocky uh, last year, and uh, they're just uh, two of the best. So um, it was mine to lose as soon as uh, Dad gave me the go ahead to hook those ones, and uh, yeah, it was pretty easy. Got around the barrels clean, and and uh, run a little bit. Other than that, it was, uh, it was a good show. Uh, hooked a lot of dad's horses uh, for the second hook and a couple of Mitches and stuff like that um, on the WPCA just because uh, I only packed 10 horses, uh, you know, for the WCA, uh, especially for the second half of the year. You know, I really cut down on the, on the number of horses. Um, so, yeah, no, uh, hooked a lot of stuff I hadn't really driven before and stuff like that, but uh, it turned out pretty good. And all in all, it was, uh, it was a good Dawson Creek this year. How do you go about, like, I guess, getting other people's horses to hook? Because, I mean, you build a relationship with your horses. I don't know if you built that relationship with these other ones. So how does that kind of work when you go into these competitions? Yeah, no, I definitely haven't built, like, any relationship to uh, the ones that I was hooking with dads. Like, there there were some that I, you know, never uh, drove before or whatever. Um, well, maybe I shouldn't say that. There's a couple of new ones uh, that I raced the dads uh, two nights on the wheel. Um, and I uh, helped break them. Uh, we broke them together. Uh, I believe Dad bought them. They come out of Seattle. Um, so, you know, I kind of was there for when they were um, first being driven. Um, that's a couple of his name, Tapper and Court. So I, I remember those two. But, uh, you know, horses come a long ways. And, and uh, you know, he's had them for about four or five years now. So um, they come a long ways since uh, we were breaking them. So, um, you don't really know what to expect. Um, I think some guys uh, need a really, really specific type of horse to work for them. And uh, so guys like that, um, you know, don't really care to be driving, you know, a bunch of outfits with uh, different horses on them that's never hooked. Um, but the way that uh, we drove, and I say we as in, you know, my dad, grandpa, uh, you know, Kirk and Mitch, um, just, the way, just the way we move our hands and our style of driving, um, it opens up to a lot, uh, a lot more different horses. You know, we'll drive horses with tough mouth. We'll drive horses with zero mouth. Uh, you know, as far as on the line, which um, other styles I believe limit to. Um, whichever styles are best, I, I don't know. It's it's uh, gone uh, 
uh, both ways in the past. You know, some guys, uh, it really, really works out for them if they can, they can seem to find those special types of horses that they need. Uh, and they, and they seemed to outrun us uh, quite a few times too. So um, it, it just, uh, it was, it wasn't uh, too bad for me personally, um, driving a bunch of horses that I, that I wasn't, um, used to, but, uh, like I said, uh, uh, I'm used to it because, uh, we've done it lots before. Well, that, that's really interesting. Cause I guess I've always kind of walked through the barns and wondered like, huh, I wonder if, you know, Mark is using Mitch's horses or Mitch is using Mark's horses or, you know, like just kind of like the relationships with the families because, Check wagon racing really is a family sport at the end of the day, and there's so many drivers that are related to each other. Yeah, like you wouldn't you wouldn't ever really see you know Mark using Mitch's horses or or um, Mitch using my horses or or anything like that. Um, it really doesn't extend that far. But however, you would see me using Dad's horses or Dad using my horses since we kind of travel together. And the same with Mitch and Kirk. You'll see those guys swapping horses and stuff, you know, to win big races and whatnot. Um, it, it pretty much uh, just just goes as far as who you're traveling with. And that's really all guys will switch horses. Now, um, you know, for example, I know uh, Rick Fraser and Chad Harden, and I'm sure they don't mind me saying it. Um, you know, they used to uh, swap horses every now and then. Um, you know, if, if they needed a left wheeler just for the one race or whatever, so, you know, yeah, we'll try out this horse if you want, just take him, he needs a blow or whatever, right? So um, that that would happen uh, the odd time. But like, say if, uh, you know, if guys are going in to win dashes or guys are um, going into tight running in the world. Um, they're not really borrowing horses from other guys and stuff like that. They're kind of more um, stick to stick to what they know and stick to their own horses. If they're going to be boring horses, they're likely just to buy the horses, you know? So um, unless it's with the guy you're traveling with, you know, like dad and grandpa, if dad made a dash or grandpa made a dash, um, they would kind of team up and they might hook, um, you know, one horse on the right wheel that starts a little harder or something like that. Usually they'll keep the same lead teams because, um, you know, the leaders usually have to work together, but uh, in our style, I feel anyways, um, the wheelers, uh, the rammer, the jammer, the betters. So um, they, they might do that. But, uh, yeah, guys guys, pretty much try and keep it the same team they, that got them there. That's a, I guess that's a kind of good insight on that because it's something that, I mean, I've heard other people ask me too when we've sat and watched the races. So, I mean, that's kind of – a good explanation of what goes on behind the barns when it comes to that sort of stuff. Um, heading into, I guess, part two now, you brought up your grandpa. So we have part two of our interview with Kelly. Uh, thank you to everybody who listened to part one. It it was actually a pretty cool experience. Uh, I didn't, if you listen, talk much, but it was cool listening to you and your grandpa talk there, Jason. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it was good for me, too. Um, obviously, we recorded already, um, and there's a 100 questions I could still ask him that I'm sure uh, people would find interesting. Uh, it's hard to hard to find a few things just to talk about in, in that small amount of time. And, of course, the way Grandpa talks, he'll just, you know, keep going on and on about um, other things, and I'll, and I'll uh, keep carrying the story on. So, um, yeah, it was a long interview, and uh we broke it up into two parts and uh, it was good to have him on and, and uh, hopefully I can have him on again because he's just got so many uh, little secrets and funny things about the game, uh, you know, that he's seen over the 50 years. So um, definitely good to chat with him and I've chat with him uh, just like that uh, many times before. So 
And here we go into part two of our interview with Kelly Sutherland and Take It Away, Dayton. One question that I think people are going to be interested in that you mentioned to me a while ago um, was how much the, uh, let's say, salary for a lack of a better word or sponsorship dollars, I suppose, or prize money um, altogether accumulatively uh, has changed so much over the years. Um, now, full disclaimer for for people that uh, are listening that these numbers might not be exact or correct or whatever, Um, you know, things change and you actually can go um, Google it and whatnot um, of of what, of what these guys were getting paid. But um, you told me once that uh, when Wayne Gretzky came into the league of the NHL, or uh, at least he was within his uh, entry level contract that uh, he was making uh, the same that you were. And I believe that you were a little bit, well, uh, older um, and you were making the same amount of money that he was, uh, and you were also, uh, you know, a young uh, phenom, let's say, uh, in the sport. Um, what was that uh, like, and, and uh, how much has it changed? Well, it's huge, and I think that's, that's where I see the most troubling aspect of the sport, is, as we have talked to. The, the cost and the revenue stream for drivers is not moved. And, of course, the costs have have doubled in a lot of times it tripled in many cases, like the purchase of horses. Uh, surbreds, uh, you know, it's a declining, declining population of surbreds that are born uh, yearly in North America, and so then you travel further. Uh, because it's a declining population, they are, uh, I would say, used a lot more than possibly they should be at a young age, which which uh, we deal with all them problems of chips in the knees, bone tendons, uh, throat surgeries and stuff. So those costs have surpassed. Uh, when I combined, uh, I met Wayne Gutsky. I was fortunate. Uh, I believe I was, I was about 20 years old or 21 years old. I hadn't won the stampede yet, but I had a good sponsor at the time. I was getting a vehicle year-round to, to utilize from my, my dear friend, uh, Danny McCullough at Macklin Ford, and it was part of my sponsorship group, and I would do uh, different events for Danny and some promotional items, uh, not in, in the off-season as well. But uh, at that time, uh, these numbers, I don't know. But I think uh, Wayne Gretzky, you know, he was getting uh, close to a million dollars or or 750,000 years when uh, Peter Pockington uh, brought him up from, from the U.S. Uh, market. So at the, so in a combination is what you're saying of um, all your prize money and uh, horse sales and sponsorship uh, because you had such strong sponsorship at the time was relatively equal to what Wayne Gretzky was getting paid? No, I would say uh, I was always at about half of what the half, because uh, I did my own calculation on what my revenue stream was compared to the published amount that Peter Pockington had paid Wayne, and he may he may not even remember meeting me. I've met a lot of people, and I was very young at the time, and, and uh, there was a bunch of hockey players, and I went over and introduced myself, but the. I just, I mean, the important thing to me was uh, if we were half or if we were, you know, 40% of, of the 
value at that time of the entertainment value. So with all the salary change and whatnot, um, what would you like to see with the sport in the future? What changes uh, do you think should uh, come? Um, I know we talked about this a little bit before we started recording, but uh, um, what do you think the sport needs? Well, I mean, it's it's very apparent that there there has there was no movement in any professional sport until there was a players' union of some kind where they could speak in a in a combined voice without emotion with actual facts. Uh, the sport will never move until all the drivers are are members of a of a union. And uh, you can look at hockey, you can look at whatever, because sim- simply corporates are going to try to retain the all, all the profits they can, which only makes sense. And uh, and there's no protection for the drivers. You know, having said that, I mean, it needs, I think, uh, an immediate cash infusion of one or two million dollars, and that has to be spread through the membership, not not specifically to the winning guy. Uh, he should have a percentage because he's the best, but certainly throughout the sport. And if that does not happen, you're going to see a great, a great decline of uh, drivers as we've seen in the past, uh, basically for financial reasons. And they're going to leave the sport, which opens another can of worms that you have less experienced drivers competing in a in a sport that's at risk for other reasons, and uh, I don't know. I have been saying that for the last four or five years, and to me, uh, it's it's just coming. And uh, either that, or they will have to change the sport drastically. Uh, which, if they do that, it will be to me the death knell of the sport. Because if you take the excitement, the risk, and the adrenaline out of the sport. Uh, there's not an appeal to the fans to come. And when the appeal doesn't show up, uh, viewership drops, viewership drops, revenue streams drop for the, for the hosting events. All of a sudden, it's just a snowball effect, and, uh, and the sport will, uh, will retract considerably. And that's kind of what makes us so unique is that uh, is that uh, we're multiple things, you know, we're, we're flat racing, we're, uh, you know, barrel turning, um, not to mention we're four horses at once. Like we're kind of, a, a, you know, I said on the last podcast as well, we're, you know, an Alberta special essentially of, of, uh, of uh, what horses can do. Is that correct? Well, for sure. I mean, it's an, it's the only Alberta sport. It's the only true Alberta sport that there is that's, Basically, you know, just was was formed outside of the Calgary Stampede. Was turned into a worldwide uh, sport, uh, viewing and revenue streams for, for television for spectators. I think that if it's not, you know, at some point the viability isn't addressed, then that sport is going to have to change because people will not continue going home. Uh, virtually in in the hole or with a negative balance sheet at the end of the year, which I know at least 50% of the truck wagon drivers do, and I would venture to say it's closer to 65 or 70% of all drivers go home with a negative balance sheet, go to work, or have other businesses supporting other streams of revenue supporting the sport. 
And uh, because the capital outlay is too high, because the the time frame is too long, it's six months now, so it takes a man out of the working. Most jobs are not six months or 12 months, but with a month or two of holidays. So it's a unique sport that if it's not protected and uh, some of the concerns addressed, uh, that is that is going to die uh, a natural death, which seems very disturbing because I don't think anybody's taken more out of the sport than me, uh, which leaves the obligation for me to put the most back in. Right. And uh, and you talked a little about um, you know how much guys are spending and and coming into a, a negative balance sheet at the end of the year. You know I'd go on record saying you run my balance sheet. I mean you help me out with uh, and then a lot of stuff a lot of people don't know. You help me out with you know um, balancing the, the cost of the sport and stuff like that and making sense of it all. You know I'll spend uh, say everything I'll make in the winter. Uh, roughly sometimes, you know, last couple of years has been a hundred thousand dollars. I'll spend all of that lump sum. And then on top of that, um, all my sponsorship money and prize money and whatnot. And then, uh, everything, everything else I can, I can absolutely squeeze out in back into the uh, sport and whatnot. And I think that's kind of a problem. That's a personal opinion of mine is, is with the sport is, um, you know, a lot of the uh, top guys, um, are making a lot of money. Uh, if not all the money, which obviously they should, they're the top guys are rewarded. But I think it's a, it's an inefficiency that, that some of the uh, uh, bottom guys are um, not making as much money. Um, not that they should be taking from the top guys, but the bottom guys are getting starved out because they have to spend the same amount of money that the top guys are spending, uh, you know, to make it on uh, the WPCA tour, to make it into Calgary and, uh, and whatnot. So uh, I think that's an inefficiency as well, is that, uh, is that how do you get somebody started in truck wagon driving? You know, if it, if it weren't for you and dad and, and, uh, and uh, uh, you know, some other guys that, that helped me out along the way and, and, you know, uncle Dean and, and uh, a lot of my family, like, you know, I wouldn't have been able to start. It took a village to get to get me going, and it still takes a village to get um, me down the road. So, like, how does anybody even start in truck wagon racing? Like, the cost is simply too much. I can't even do it with your guys' help and uh, and uh, all the money that I'm fortunate enough to, to make in the winter and, and uh, pour back in and and, uh, and just constantly keep going. Like, how do we counteract that? Can we, you know? Well, we, we can counteract it. I mean, I think the revenue streams are there, which which in, in short terms is the venues, and probably only two or three or four of them, are making profits for their venues, huge profits in some cases, in the millions, are making it off the backs of the chuck wagon drivers. And because as you know, uh, when you start working with horses and it becomes a way of life and it's a passion and it's adrenaline rush, it's a very addictive sport. And I, I mean, quite frankly, I've seen a number of individuals quit in midlife when they're at the peak of their career. They quit simply because they are not prepared to go home owing fifty or $100,000 at that stage in their life when they have kids who want to go to university, when they have Maybe they're making land acquisitions, maybe whatever they're doing on the offside. They're not prepared to do that anymore. They might be prepared. A lot of them are prepared to do it. 
at your age, even with a small family, because I think that there's a small number of, I say, five to seven guys out of a hundred that are racing wagons that actually come home profitable. And of course, the winner comes home with the highest profit. So seven out of seven percent coming home with a with a positive balance sheet does not uh, allow a sport to survive. It just does not. I mean, if I think there's about a hundred wagon racers in the world, uh, I think there's only probably thirty-five. Well, I'd say there's 45 or 50 that are capable of putting a show on at the Calgary Stampede that's required, both from a safety, from an experience aspect, and from a number of uh, marketing and a number of issues. There's only 50 of them left in the world, keeping in mind that probably 30 of them are going home with a negative balance sheet, hoping to get in Kurt Bensmiller's shoes, who has won all the money up until this year. And that's what their dream is. And, and going backwards or going to work all winter and getting the balance sheet back to zero or above with enough money that they can do it the next year. So Just to do it that, all over again. That, that's, not, that's not a healthy thing for the sport. And uh, to me, I, I uh, simply, I know it's just uh, a matter of greed on uh, on some individuals, and that happened in pro hockey. That happened in every sport, baseball, because they're billionaire owners. And until there was a, until there was a players' union, there was no negotiating uh, salaries. There was no salary cap. You could talk the guy into playing for nothing or pay you to play. He did it because he he was a hockey player. And he was passionate. You can read the books. Uh, the Gordy Howe and all the old guys, and they would say, oh, that guy's going to play for this much over here, and, and uh, he's better than you. And So I think that you need the industry itself has to believe that a driver's union uh, puts, uh, would be the first step. And then, of course, once that's formed, then you sit down with the producing venues, with facts, you get rid of all the emotion. You just simply put the facts down, and you work towards not overnight. You work towards uh, something that's profitable and sustainable for the sport, both for them, firstly, because without the venues you have nothing, and secondly, for the competitors, because without them you have nothing. So, I think that that's what has to be done, and uh, until the drivers are prepared to make the first step then uh, it's not going to happen. Right. And then that, that kind of um, leads into the question that uh, um, we need to keep track of the money, uh, you know, in the sport. I don't know if, if that's something that you agree with, but uh, I know it's something that I've seen the last few years, especially the way that the sport's grown is like a, is like a, there's no salary cap in chuck wagon racing. You know what I mean? So um, some guys are, are, are just making what they spend and some guys are, are um, um, you know spending tenfold what some guys are are just trying to you know survive off of. So yeah, it's definitely a tough sport. I don't know if if uh, it can ever be um, regulated that way. I know you know a lot of sports aren't like jumping and whatnot. There's no salary cap in that. I just know that uh, that uh, 
the penny that some guys are, are trying to do it on and, uh, and uh, just doesn't make any sense, especially with uh, what they're up against, you know, guys like, uh, you know, Kurt Bensmiller. And, you know, obviously we both know Kurt. I know for a fact that um, Kurt doesn't spend uh, uh, near the amount of money that other guys do. He actually spends quite a bit less and, and uh, he's, you know, pretty smart with his money. He doesn't uh, um, <laughs> blow it all essentially back on the, in the wagon circuit. But uh, I, I definitely think that's uh, that's an issue as well. I think, you know, well, I mean, when you get into, you know, solid cap and spend because we're individuals, I mean, one guy might, might feel it warrants uh, spending 20000 at at the vet clinics to operate on throats and knees of horses. And the other one opts to sell the horse because he's not wanting to put that investment in, which, by the way, isn't successful in the time. But what right. I do know is that, to be a successful wagon driver, you have to be a number of things. You have to be a farrier, number one, that really helps, number two. So if nothing else, if you don't, if you, you don't have time and the competing time to trim your horse's feet, at least you know what a, what a good chewing job is like. You may be able to trim them, which is a huge cost in the off-season. Uh, number two, you have to have a, quite a bit of veterinarian savvy. So you can't always afford to go to the veterinarian clinics or to hire a veterinarian, the professionals. So you have to have uh, a broad-based knowledge of, uh, you know, of veterinary needs to, to the thoroughbred horse. Secondly, I think the most important thing is you have to be a super salesman. Uh, you know, you have to, to me, the sport's kind of like, you know, the old brick, how they started. The last salesman, he got fired every month, they guy with the lowest sales and that's really what happens to wagon drivers they 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 just quit and i and because they started out because without sponsorship which is representing 50 percent of your income if you're not strong or equal then you're losing 50 percent of your revenue and i watch it in all in that in chuck wagon racing it was very interesting that certain guys just have a knack of uh, of getting companies involved that they feel there's a value and that's a revenue stream to them. And so if you can't raise money uh, to, to from companies to be involved with you at, in that sport level, which cuts costs, whether they supply services, whether they supply fuel, whether they supply uh, equipment, then you're not going to survive because that was one thing that I was the very best at. I have the very best sponsors, the very best people, and hopefully they, they feel they have the very best truck wagon driver. And I made it the utmost that I sold and I collected money. And if you don't do that, you just can't survive. You can't buy the, the horses in Kentucky and Ohio and all through the country like I did. You just can't because there's no revenue stream. So I think there's – and plus you have to have skill. So, uh, you know, a complete wagon driver is faced with a lot of, a lot of challenges uh, to be successful. And, uh, you know, I think Kurt Benson is a prime example. You know, he outrode, he shot, he, he, he's a great horseman. He's, he's a great uh, ambassador for the sport. He can collect. He has big sponsor money. They stay. So that means they're happy with what he's providing. And he... He's innovative enough to go find them and sell himself. And, 
you know, to me, I mean, that's, that's what makes the round circle that makes him the champion driver. I mean, he's got a lot of skill driving. And uh, and uh, how he wants to spend his money in the winter season, whether it's at the BLTs or the, or the Frank Sisson's casino, is up to him. I know that he he has a high revenue stream that allows him to be very strong in the sport. And I think a lot of guys just have to look at that and they have to adapt themselves around those qualities. We're actually going to have uh, Kurt on eventually here. We've been, I've been talking to him and I'm trying to get him on. Um, and that's something that I can talk to him about is the, is the, um, you know, revenue and being smart with your money and, uh, and uh, how much he's reinvested. And I've talked to him about it personally, I know, and, and I know um, how little he spends and, and that, uh, and that he actually uh, is more so focused on getting finally getting started with his uh, his life and savings and stuff and whatnot with that money and that's something that Logan Gorsett too was the first thing he did um, you know after he won this year was you know um, started doing smarter things with his money and, and kind of getting ahead in life which is crazy you know at that age a guy who uh, you know he says he said he worked all winter and, and uh, he's done his whole life and all this stuff and always worked hard I mean Chuck Lane racing is no you know no walk in the park when you're you know you got to put in the hour you're in the barn uh, you know night and day and like you say shoeing and jogging horses and keeping them hydrated and all that stuff so um, it's it's crazy, and I know that's something that's funny that we had that conversation because that's something that you said to me a hundred times over that I've had problems with is uh, is uh, you know selling yourself and going out and, and uh, trying to get companies involved, which is which is um, and something that I have to get better at. And I know a lot of guys um, that that struggle in that area too because uh, they just don't have that uh, gene in their in their you know DNA. They're just not. Um, people that are that are that want to be outgoing and want to go you know trying to get companies involved and stuff so like you say it's it's definitely complete complete package i know we've had that conversation many times before just not uh obviously not being recorded so um that's good for for uh information i think um that's about it for uh for questions uh for us um uh, Cass actually had to just uh, jump off real quick there. Um, that's kind of the part of the thing about doing podcast part-time. Um, but uh, I know uh, she'd like to thank you uh, for coming on, and uh, I would as well. Uh, we've had these conversations uh, um, many a times before, but uh, it's, it's uh, always good to have them again. And, uh, and uh, you know me, I forget quite a bit, so it doesn't hurt for me to hear it all over again. Um yeah, uh, thanks for thanks for doing this, and uh, yeah, we'll uh, catch up with you again soon. All right, then I'll see you at home. Okay, bye, Grant. Thank you for covering for me there, Dayton, when I kind of I guess had to go do what was then my day job. So uh, thank you for that. Yeah, no worries. It's pretty easy to uh, grab a talk, so <laughs> wasn't much. But uh, yeah, no, that was uh, um, um, good to have him on and. Uh, and uh, thanks to him for doing that. I know uh, he does love to do a lot of interviews and talking and stuff because uh, you know he's more from the old school. But uh, yeah, it was it was good to chat with him there. You know, there's a question that we've been asked, and uh, I'm sure you've been asked it a thousand times. But you wrap your grandpa's feather on your uh, hat, and I mean most people know your grandpa to wear that feather, and they kind of know the feather as your grandpa. So do you know the story of how Kelly got the feather and like, why do you rep it now? 
Um, yeah, so I obviously have the feather mat. So does my uh, cousin Tops. And now actually a lot of people that we travel with are starting to put like feathers in their hats. We're trying to make it kind of a thing. But um, Grandpa, I believe, got it. Uh, he was having a tough year in Calgary uh, one year. He didn't have it his whole life. Um, and it was really early in his career, I'd say in his uh, mid-20s or something like that. And uh, he was he was doing very poor. It was after about, say, day five or day three or, or something uh, of that nature in Calgary. And he'd hit a couple of barrels and, and wasn't having a very good outing. And then uh, he actually had a Native American friend. I can't remember if he came up and introduced himself to him or how it worked. But he just kind of explained to him. So he said, you know, from our culture, uh, the eagle feather here is, is really good luck. You can tie it in your hat and it'll bring you, you know, uh, better luck in the future. So um, that's what Grandpa did. He took this, you know, sometimes obnoxiously long eagle feather and would tie it in his hat. And uh, it was always on the left side of the bird where the heart was. And, uh, and it was supposed to bring really good luck. And Grandpa actually turned it around um, that stampede and ended up winning it. Uh, you know, with the eagle feather. So um, after that, he said he never took the eagle feather out of his hat. And uh, yeah, it uh, kind of became a thing over the years. Um, you know, I don't know how much superstition uh, he has, if he if he still believes that, you know, it was good luck or whatever, but it kind of just grew into more of a, of a symbol, uh, you know, of his career. They call him the feather for a long time, and they call him the king, you know, and, and it's hard to miss. The feathers are a foot long, so they stick quite a, far, quite a bit far out of your hat. So um, and that's more or less why I started doing it, uh, you know, family heritage, that type of thing. It's the same thing with like, uh, you know, glass and the checkerboards or um, Dorchester and the diamond plates. And uh, yeah, so it, it's more of just a symbol of a family and just kind of, you know, carrying that on. And, you know, it's fortunate for me to have it and the same as my cousin, uh, because, you know, it was already built up for, you know, say 30, 40 years. So, uh, you know, when, you know, I haven't really done much in the sport yet. And, uh, you know, obviously I plan to, but I can walk with my, you know, Eagle feather on and in my, in my cowboy hat in any store, in, you know, Alberta. And somebody will say, you know, I recognize that feather. Are you so-and-so or are you related to Kelly Sutherland or whatever? Right. Because, um, Eagle feathers are hard to find. So, you know, I use it that way, um, you know, to get recognition and, and, uh, and kind of as a symbol of, uh, you know, who we are and what we do. So, um, it works well that way. And, uh, yeah, I'm pretty glad that, uh, Grandpa started all those years ago. Another thing that I kind of, I guess, listening to both interviews we've done with your grandpa, uh, you kind of follow him in, I mean, the way that you're now back on the WTCA and, you're not just driving again. You are out riding from what I've heard and been told. Yeah, yeah. I got a few heats here in Rocky. I had a few in uh, in Dawson Creek there. So, uh, you know, out riding. I've been out riding since I was 15. I'm 21 now. So I've been out riding um, a long time, or at least a long time for me, <laughs> a good portion of my life. So back out riding, it makes sense. Uh, it's a good way to make money, especially if you're young like me and you're, you know, you're trying to pay bills in the wagon circuit, whatnot. Uh, Basically, if you can do it, you got to do it. So uh, we're back out riding, and uh, I don't mind it. I enjoy it. I figure a lot of things out with horses and stuff like that, um, you know, out riding. That's one thing Grandpa always said to me was that uh, a lot of the best wagon drivers there ever were uh, started as outriders, and the reason being is because um, you see so much um, in a race. You know, I was just talking to Rick Fraser actually, about that yesterday, uh, you know, how much an outrider can – 
can see in a race because you can you can outride nine heats a night. So you see nine races play out. So you get a lot more experience um, and track time versus um, you know somebody who's unable to outride. So um, it's good that way. And you can also figure things about uh, you know figure out things about horses and whatnot and uh, you know how they are, you know how their mouths are and stuff like that versus. Um, you know, just sitting in a wagon box. Because if you're just sitting in the wagon box and you're trying to pull on the lines and stuff, it's it's kind of foreign. Um, you know, you're quite a ways from the horse. But if you're, you know, on top of the horse, you're riding them, you're racing them down the track, you're jumping them in the barrels, you're you're right next to him, you can feel his energy, you can see how he's acting, um, you know, that type of thing. Uh, you gain a lot more, um, you know, respect and knowledge and experience, I felt anyways, uh, for the horse. Uh, versus if you're just, you know, sitting up on the seat, you know, five feet away from them, you, it's tougher to tell how anxious they are, how nervous they are, um, how excited they are, how calm they are, those types of things. So you really figure out, or at least I did, uh, uh, horses out riding, and uh, that's personally why I started. You said there are some guys that do nine heats a night, and I mean, when you said that one uh, outrider now that, like, I guess when I was in Strathmore, I could think of was Casey Knight. It seemed every time I looked out on the infield, there was Casey. He was uh, outriding. Um, but what is that experience like? Um, what's the difference between either throwing the stove or holding the lead team? What's the difference experience for an outrider in that positioning? Um, yeah, like the good outrides, like you said, a ride, um, the best ones arrive like nine, eight heats a night, something like that. Um, Casey's one of them, Rory's one of them, those two are actually, uh, you know, top two in the world right now. Uh, I just can't remember uh, who's edging out who now by the time this podcast airs, it'll be different, I'm sure. Um, they're really, really tight. Uh, as far as lead and stove men go, um, it used to be stove men were, you know, the rookies or where new guys would start. Um, and then, you know, throughout the career after three or four years of riding, you would kind of, kind of, uh, you know, graduate to the lead team. Um, and that's just how it was. And then there was some guys that were, you know, bonafide stove men, some guys that were just lead men, like, you know, Chad Cosgrave, we always joked about, um, he would only hold leaders. Like he would ride nine heats a night, you know, every single show. And I don't, I don't know if I've ever seen him on stove, maybe once, you know, he just always, always hold leaders. And that's just what... Uh, he was good at, and that's what people have known him for. And I'm sure he could have rode stove if he wanted to. It's just, uh, you know, it was his bread and butter. So um, there is difference. Um, and nowadays, um, a lot of the new guys are actually starting on leads. Um, I don't know why, because uh, the leaders are, are actually a little bit more dangerous. It usually required a little bit more experience because um, if the wagon to the left of you, so if you were on two, the th- uh, three-barrel wagon, say if your number two wagon went up to his top barrel and was right tight to his chalk line and then the number three wagon came uh on the other side of the barrel while he was turning came right tight to his chalk line so you're going to get clipped there and you know that's happened to uh, a number of guys it's happened to me before it's happened to pretty much anybody who's held leaders um so it, it, it required a little bit of experience to, to um you know get on there and, and to judge your timing to either sit back or it's usually to, to run right through. Right. So, um, and, and try and get out there as quick as possible. Um, and it also, you're also, you know, starting the wagon off horse race. You have to be really good with the horses. You have to be calm handed. You have to be easier on the mouths or, or be able to move the outfit if they need to. So, um, usually the leaders, um, requires a bit of experience. The best guys, um, you know, still are, 
kind of lead men. Um, Casey's actually one of the other guys that, that has been a stove man for a really long time. He's been a really, really good one. Um, Rio King was another one. He usually only uh, threw stove, and he was always a really good outrider. So um, it just kind of seems to be a little bit of a shift right now in the sport. I don't know if it's going to be more you know, newer guys um, going to the lead. Uh, it just seems to be changing. But uh, now it seems the stovemen, or I guess it's always been, um, in my opinion, and this is kind of what I was told when I was younger, is that the stovemen um, always had a more chance to take penalties, right? Because you're you, one, you have to load the stove. Um, it's different, like for the lead men, if he misses up or messes up, sorry, the you know direction of the leaders. Um, there's no penalty. Usually, the driver can drive out of it. It's not that it's it's bad, but it's not um, treacherous, right? Well, if you're throwing the stove on a hard starting outfit, which has happened before in dashes, it's happened before in Calgary, it's happened before all over, um, and you you can not load that stove. Like that's how quick that wagon's moving. You have to get that stove from the ground into the wagon box. So those horses hit at the perfect time, and uh, you know they outwork you, and uh, and you can't get that stove in the back of the wagon. There's a penalty. Um, you also have to hold the horse to the back. You have to go through two barrels versus on the leads. You only have to really go around the bottom because the wagon's turning the tops. So you can't hit the top barrel. Um, you know, and the and the stove uh, man has to go. You know basically give himself space and then follow the wagon up, have to make sure his horse doesn't turn over top of the right barrel or go left at the top or go too hard straight so he can't make it back or he's late or whatever. So um, the stoveman was always uh, a little bit of an easier job uh, if you were well-trained, I thought, um, but you also were at more risk of a penalty. So um, it's to me, it's a little bit... Um, you know, uh, different, uh, who you're going to hire, where, um, for me, like as a driver, I'm always going to, will be more worried about my lead man just because I want a really, really good start at the, at the, you know, horn, um, which most guys are like that. And, uh, um, yeah, it's, it's just a different, uh, some guys do some better. Some guys do, um, others better. I'm personally been a stove man. Uh, we always joke me and Casey since we've both been stove men that, uh, Rory, uh, Jarvis, who, you know, kind of taught us both, um, sabotaged our careers because we'd always ride with Rory, you know, he'd actually throw us on, you know, get us a couple of rides with other guys and, and Rory would always be on leaders. So here we are five, six years into our career. Casey's even further into his career and, uh, just starting to hold leaders now, you know, so just cause we rode with Rory for so long and rode alongside him. But, uh, yeah, it's just kind of how, how those types of things play out. How, I guess, you need to be 150 um, feet, feet, right? Am I right on that? It's actually, it used to be 150 feet. Um, you know, once your wagon crosses the finish line, you had to be 150 feet behind, which is actually an outrider line. They mark it out uh, further back. Um, however, Calgary changed that rule about two years ago. And then ultimately the WPCA changed the rule um, following that after Calgary kind of tried it out. Um, because if people don't know, the Calgary Stampede, the only show that has different rules than um, the rest of the WPCA Tour, just because they bring in the CPCA as well. Um, most of the rules are the same. Uh, certain things are different. Like uh, the WPCA, you can move anywhere on the home stretch. You don't have to pick a lane. In Calgary, you have to pick a lane. Um, the 200-foot rule um, was one. So um, they, they changed a few things. Um, when the 200-foot rule came in, a lot of guys were against it. A lot of guys were for it. Um, I've seen both sides. I mean, you know, keep the competitiveness, competitiveness of the sport um, intact, you know. 
Um, but then also your wagons are getting faster. Um, out riding's more about finesse nowadays, not about, you know, crushing a, a tough horse and, and, uh, getting that, getting on that horse that cranks real hard or takes you right to the chutes, goes up straight and, uh, tough to get on or those types of things. Um, it's more about getting out there quick enough every single time. So if your wagon happens to daylight the other guys and you have to ride around the, you know, three wagons and your guys three lengths in front, you're going to be there, right? You're in a good enough position. You get out of the barrels early enough that you can catch that wagon. Um, so to me, that's more about what outriding is about now. And, uh, you know, also about being kind on the horse, saving the horse for the full season, you know, not running them if he needs, um, you know, doesn't need to be run that hard or uh you know those types of things so um the game's forever changing and and the you know outrider line moving it from 150 to 200 feet was just one of those things i guess as a driver and an outrider there is um there's two different mentalities when you get a penalty um let's focus more on the outrider prospect because that's what we've been talking about kind of the show. Um, but if you get that late outrider penalty, how do you feel after? Like, I, I don't think most people could understand kind of that thinking and mentality. Well, no penalty you get um, that is one that you want, you know, um, it doesn't matter if the horse messes up, like your driving horse, your right leader, something messes up that makes you mad because now you're questioning, okay, is the horse going to work the same time next time? Or is it going to work better? Is that just a one-time thing? It's never fun if you mess up because you know, you should have had it, right? You know, you should have done a better job. You know, you should have done this. You're frustrated with yourself. But uh, I would definitely say it's most frustrating if an outrider, you know, takes a penalty because um, there aren't many bad horses on the WPCA as far as outriding goes. There might be new horses, but there's not many many bad horses. There's no there's no place for them. You know, guys are too competitive. Guys are always trying to make points. Um, there's not many horses that are that are tough to get on um, or tough to ride. Or, like, I mean, don't get me wrong. There are there is the odd one, um, but uh, like your so, trouble horses. Yeah, like 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 travel horses. I mean, there there just really isn't um, room for them in an outriding pen in the WPCA, um, just because guys put too much into it. And outriding horses are a lot easier to make, in my opinion, than than say like a perfect left leader. Like a perfect outriding horse, um, you might find say one in five, I would say, in um, or at least good enough to make it for a, for a duration of a career where most guys can ride this horse. Uh, you might, you know, find that one in five or one in 10 or, or whatever it is. Um, I'd be shocked if it was one in 10 for most outfits. Um, you know, for example, I was just over at uh, a barn today trying out, you know, out riding horses, new ones, and, you know, had options at four uh, different horses we could ride or, or choose to spend the night. And uh, we only really need to make one or two horses. And um, we tried all four and all four were, perfect there's nothing wrong with all four of them now if they make it the whole career um that's a different story but anyways um it, it's pretty easy to make a nice outriding horse now to make a good wagon horse um um it's very very difficult it's it's one in 50 it's one in 100 you know what i mean um so when an outrider messes up it's usually usually the outrider's fault um unless it's a really really top guy um, even those guys, you know, like, like, uh, have off nights. I had an off night in Dawson Creek. Um, I rode my, I rode literally the best horse in the barn for my dad. And, uh, you know, I've rode the horse forever. Uh, I, you know, helped break the horse. I, I can't remember 
um, exactly where we got him. I remember the year we got him, but, uh, you know, I took him to Mount Rice School and helped break him and, and jumped him. And uh, um, he's been around forever. And uh, I got on him just a little bit late. I was being kind of lazy and just wasn't really on top of my game. And I come back. And uh, my lines were scrambled, and uh, I knocked over my dad's top barrel coming back towards the bottom. So um, if I had I got on him just sooner, had I been, you know, just at least putting in more effort or, or thinking more, um, you know, I, I wouldn't have taken that penalty. And, and things just get repetitive, at least for me out there. So, you know, sometimes I get a little bit... Um, unfocused or whatever so you know it's frustrating like when my when I took that penalty from my dad I mean he wasn't gonna win game money or anything but he's like why'd you take that penalty you know I'm out here doing all this stuff before the race and uh you know trying to get all my horses ready I'm running these decent horses uh trying to send them you know get them as much out of them as I can uh you know on the finish line and here you are you know not even trying and taking out these these penalties you know not that I wasn't trying it was just you know I made a stupid error on a perfect horse and that happened all the time so um it's frustrating what i'm trying to say is it's frustrating when an outrider takes a penalty because uh, on the wpca there shouldn't be much penalty taking it's either um you know uh lack of or, or bad judgment or um i guess uh incompetence um just because uh, you know it might be a new outrider or something like that but there just really really isn't isn't much room for outrider penalties um, on the WPCA. Like I said, there's the odd horse that's really tough, and then uh, if the driver's sending them and the outrider can't get the job done, well, then maybe it's part of the driver's fault. But uh, um, at least for most of the guys that uh, I've ridden for in my career, um, it, that just hasn't been the case. Most of the penalties that I've taken have been, uh, you know, my own fault, or most penalties, um, I think a lot of penalties taken in the outriding pen um, are the outrider's fault. Do you have, or I guess your dad has, one really good outriding horse that like is just the cream of the crop? They're the top of the top. Yeah, for me, uh, it was Jitters, um, and that was the one I was just talking about. Um, it just he's he's really really my style of horse. Um, I I really like to go up hard to the top, and uh, one of the things I've always been good at is getting on. Um, so it didn't matter how fast the horse was was going, I could just kind of hang off the side and, and pull myself on, or get a really good bounce and, and get on him. And Jitters likes to Jitters works best when you take him up hard and and just bail on him. He does the rest, right? And uh, he turns uh, as soon as you're in the saddle. He makes a big big uh, hard turn to the right. And that uh, comes back towards the bottom. And that's something that I messed up on is I did, I just didn't even take him up hard. I just was so relaxed and, and didn't really um, um, put my whole you know, mind into it. So um, that's one of dad's best horses. And uh, he's won awards in Calgary for it and stuff like that. Um, he's got so much around. He's got so much try. He's so easy to handle. He'll go slow. He'll go fast. Uh, he'll do whatever you want. He doesn't try and pull your arms off around the track. He'll sit wherever you want. He's easy to race. You can sit on the rail. You can go out wide with him. He's just, uh, he's just uh, for me, my personal uh, um, style of horse, and, and uh, I really enjoy him. Now, there's some guys, um, I'd say like Casey and Rory or Dustin Gorsh was always another one, I thought, that uh, liked a, a different style of horse, one that kind of goes up slower, picks your own speed. You get to the top, you might slow down a little bit or, or keep going straight at a you know slow trot. And then as soon as you hit the saddle, he turns around and comes out of the barrels. Um, I just was never like that. I was, uh, you know, maybe I started like that uh, early on, but as I got more of my career, I always like to go up uh, a bit harder and get on a 
you know, more of a turning horse or, or a hard starting horse or, or whatever won the graphic year, just cause, uh, I like to, I like horses that got out of there really quick. Uh, and I didn't really care how it was done or, or still don't. Um, so there are, there are horses in dad's barn that, uh, other guys uh, personally like better, but, uh, um, jitters is just a favorite for me. And maybe that's something uh, we can sit down and talk about at Worlds uh, with you and maybe Casey and Rory is just like, how do you train to do this outriding uh, stuff when you don't have the horses with you? What is your training regimen? How do you stay on top of, like you said, your own mental uh, competitiveness when you're going to do this? Well, honestly, um Rory's old, so he has to get horses <laughs> sent to him in the spring. Um, that's not actually the whole truth, but um, you know, Rory's. I feel appreciate being called old. Well, he's old to be an outrider. You know, he's on the second half of his career, so let's put it that way. He's not actually old. I mean, the guy's um, in his thirties, right? So he's not actually old, but um, uh, you know, an outrider. Um, usually goes from say 15 to oh I don't know 35 40 and those 40 year old outriders usually the top end now guys um, like Wayne Wright and Sean Caffrell ride after that and uh, but they're kind of you know freaks in nature like they're kind of like uh, your Mary Yagers of the sports like they they just seem to last forever they can do it forever um, you know Rory uh, certain things bother him now I think uh, you know injuries from life and and uh, um, being a cowboy you know um, um, have caused him a little bit of trouble so he likes to get on a couple horses uh, in the spring and, and so we'll send him some uh, we'll send him some new ones and he kind of gets them broke and uh, it works good for for us because you know he rides for dad um, he's, he's on one of dad's main calls so uh, it works good that way and uh, and that's kind of how let's say he would get in shape for the season um, and then when he comes to Grand Prairie Roy works real hard so he'll uh, he'll ride as many as he can he'll kind of feel out the barns and stuff like that and uh, he likes it too um, you know he, he really likes to to check out the horses and uh, it's it's fun for him right like it's it's his summer hobby more um, and then uh, guys like Casey like Casey used to play hockey all winter so he'd always stay in shape uh, you know and still stay competitive and then um, you know, come Grand Prairie, uh, he wouldn't touch a single horse, uh, or at least not that I know of, maybe at his dad's, but um, more so just come in cold and uh, for seven days before Grand Prairie, ride as many as you can ride and get the feel for it and uh, and carry on for there. And, uh, you know, me personally, um, I'll give you another example. When I was young, I used to be like, uh, like, like, um, you know, more Rory style, just ride everything, get lots of practice in and because I needed it. I was, I was, you know, younger, more inexperienced. I was weak. You know, I was 130 pounds when I was 15 trying to ride. So I, I rode as many as I could. And, uh, you know, now as I'm older, um, life kind of starts taking over. I got to work. I got to train my own chuck wagon horses and stuff. So, you know, for this year, um, I, I probably rode, you know, maybe four horses before the first race. Um, I just, just didn't really have the time or the horses or the the really the desire to be out there you know getting on horse in the morning um which uh which you know can kind of fall to you uh if you don't want to be getting on horses all the time because uh it, you know if you sleep in the outriding game you know like i said in dawson creek like i did uh you take penalties and you get fired so um you, it does come to does come back to bite you in the butt that's for sure your dad didn't fire you as a son, though. He always keeps you as a son. 
Yeah, no, dad, dad does. Uh, when he's actually never, I don't think he's ever fired me, um, you know, as an outrider either. Um, dad's always been one guy that uh, um, I've either been hit or miss for. Like uh, I remember some seasons when I was real young, when I was 16 or 17, I might take like three or four penalties a year for him. And me and Rory were actually talking about this uh, on the way to Dawson Creek there um, about, you know, how many penalties we'd take. And, and last year I, I took quite a few penalties early on, just was not into it. Um, same story. I, I Maybe that's a pattern here. Um, you know, I didn't really ride much in the spring and I wasn't really on top of my game. And uh, I took some penalties early on, didn't really care, had a bad attitude, that type of thing. Um, just towards out riding because, uh, um, you know, I'm just so more, much more into driving now. Um, and then second half of the season, I never took a single penalty. Um, you know, I just, just uh, gave my head a, sh- you know, shake and uh, said, you're better than this. You know how to do this. This is easy for you, you know. So, um, and then guys like Rory might take, you know, say three, four penalties a year, if that. So um, when you're when you're an outrider, you've been doing it that long, like Rory, um, he doesn't really ever seem to be off his game. He doesn't ever seem to get complacent like that, like uh, some other guys do, like myself or, or whatever. And, uh, you know, kudos to him uh, for doing that because those types of guys only get three, four penalties, you know, a year riding nine heats at every single show. And uh, Rory's one of those guys, if he's taking the penalty, there's a damn good reason he's taking that penalty. Like, he's, he gives it himself uh, 100% every single ride. So, um, yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's not an easy game. Yeah, you gotta you got to do a lot of practice to get into it. Um, but uh, once you're where those guys are, um, once you're, you know, into it, you're, you're broke and uh, you know what you're doing. Um, it's it's uh, quite repetitive and, and it stays uh, pretty simple, I'd say. Oh, you know, that's actually a pretty good insight because I don't think people fully understand just how much work the outriders put into what goes on. Um, I guess that now we can kind of start talking about what's going on this weekend. You're in Rocky Mountain House. Uh, You are going to be defending your title from last year. Uh, Is that kind of in the back of your mind anywhere? Are you just going to go with the flow? It honestly wasn't in my head at all till you said it last podcast <laughs> about like defending. You're welcome. Yeah, you know what? Like maybe I could because the thing about the Rocky Mountain House is that um, the track seems to get slower over the night, just the way that the track is. Um, it's not necessarily a bad thing, you know. That's why those guys are in the 19th, the 18th, the 17th because they're the faster wagon, so it kind of evens the spread, which uh, I don't mind personally being in the first heats and stuff like that. Um, and, uh, you know, if you're in the ninth heat, you're running for the world against the guys in the ninth heat. The only thing about it is, um, the guys in the first heat, like I did last year, had to have a, you know, very, very large advantage, um, to be more competitive in the show. So like last year I had a two second penalty, I believe on the last night and I still won the show by three seconds or, or two seconds or whatever it was just because the track got that much slower and uh, I wasn't slowing down. I just kept gaining and gaining on those guys. And I'm more so in the, in the similar situation, you know, this year um, I've got some better horses um, or at least a, a more consistent barn. Uh, you know, I, I have more of better horses. I wouldn't say I have, um, quite as quite as uh, you know um, caliber of a wheel team that I was driving last year, um, but I do have uh, a deeper barn I'd say in uh, in experience for the horses, and uh, I'm not really seated um, where I should be. You know, like uh, in in my opinion, um, I should be able to outturn 
um, my heat in the first heat with the horses that I do have if I don't, you know, which probably will be my fault. I don't know. Maybe one of these guys will surprise me. Um, that's just the way I'm looking at it as a competitor. Um, so I definitely uh, will have an advantage being in the first heat if I can outturn and uh, try and steal the rail for, you know, a few nights or a few more nights than, than, uh, than uh, I would be, say, if I was hooked in the third heat or the fourth heat or whatever. And the only reason I'm hooked in the first heat right now is because, you know, I took um, my vegan spot. So um, the way that the rules are set is that, you know, I fill the spot, I get one less point than the last guy, which was like 150-something points. So there's really no way I'm going to get out of that first heat, especially not this show because it's only a four-day show. So I do have an advantage uh, being in that first heat. If I can, you know, get out there and steal the rail a couple nights, get a few free runs around the track and, and uh, the them top dogs in the last three heats or whatever, um, you know, have a three, four second delay or two second delay just because the track's that much heavier. Well, then, you know, I'm going to run pretty tough. It's not because my outfit's um, working that much better. It's just because, uh, um, you know, I have the advantage there and, and uh, it is what it is. Like when you have, <laughs> when you have the advantage, you take it, right? Like somebody said that to me last year when I said, yeah, well, you know, I had first heat, you know, how the track is, whatever. And he said, well, you did it, you know, like you, it is what it is. And it's the same way in the ninth heat. Sometimes ninth heat is the fastest uh, for the track. And when that happens, those guys are like three, four seconds ahead of everybody. You know what I mean? Cause the horsepower is just so insane. Um, so yeah, no, I'm going to take it where I can take it and, uh, I'll try and, uh, have some good runs here. Um, you know, I might be held out by some of these other guys that might've been having some troubles last show or whatever. I, I don't know. Um, you know, I, I seemed out turn them, uh, the last show there in Dawson Creek, um, and got some free runs around the track there. So maybe they were having problems. I haven't watched them all season. You know, they could surprise me. Um, I could mess up. The horse could mess up. The other guys could mess up. You just never know what's going to happen. But um, that's kind of the game plan going in. Uh, go out there, turn and burn. And uh, I guess that's always the game plan. And I guess uh, going into next week, into our fourth episode, can you believe we're going into episode four after this? I can't believe. Yeah, no, it, it goes quick, and I'm really excited for uh, episode four, possibly episode five, the two-part. Um, it's kind of tough to uh, get a really good conversation. I don't know if I was saying that on the last podcast or not, you know, with guys, uh, especially guys like, um, you know, my grandpa or Logan or whatever, um, that you have so much to ask and, and talk about. Um, so it's tough to, tough to get that like in a 30 minute interview. So uh, I don't mind, you know, talking for an hour, hour and a half or whatever it be. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't know if you guys like what we're doing, splitting them up or whatever, um, you know, into two parts or don't mind the longer form, um, um, you know, talks and interviews. Remember to subscribe uh, if you can. Leave us a review. That is awesome. Um, and, of course, we always love to hear from you guys. Uh, we have our email, after the ninth questions at gmail.com. Uh, we have Instagram at after the ninth, Facebook, Twitter, um, and then I'm working on a website. So hopefully that will be up uh, right after Worlds. And if you want to kind of see what's going on daily, uh, again, just go like those uh, social media outlets because that is where I update daily. And uh, we're going to get Dayton to be better on that. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Better in the future. It's a full work in progress. You can focus on the horses. I'll focus on the social media. How does that work? That works good for me. I'm always a work in progress. So, um, yeah, no, uh, we'll look forward to the next week. Perfect. Um, so I'm Pat Patterson with my co-host Jason Sutherland, and have a great week, guys.
see you.